0: Thank you, men. If you're sitting in the back and wonder what's going on above you or certainly have noticed what's going on above you, it certainly would behoove us today to just recognize what's been going on here, physically at least. Uh, if you're looking at a brand new sitting, that's because of the work of Gary and Mike over the past week. We just want to recognize their hard work, and they're not done yet. In fact, a railing is coming up, and if from my vantage point... It looks like a brand new level has been put on there. So, Gary and Mike, thank you so much for that work. And again, it's yes. We need all the encouragement that we get these days. And, Gary and Mike, and of course, there's been other laborers there too. Uh, just an encouragement to see these men serving from their heart. Uh, to renovate this space for us. So it's a great way to launch into our reading of the Word and ministry of the Word. Grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the the letter, the second one, to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, and we'll be in chapter 7. Chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7. We'll look at a bit of context to start our morning, but particularly will be in verses 10 to 11, 2 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. we continue, the reason why we're turning there, if you're a regular at West Mountain, you weren't here last week, we continue this important spring preview of our upcoming summer series. That's what's going on here. We are aiming, and we need to do this, to clear up confusion on some misunderstood Bible doctrines. That's what we're doing. As mentioned last week, God willing, we will eagerly return to Romans 6 next week. We will do that, God willing. However, this week, we must turn our attention to the matter of repentance. Now, the call to repent is not merely an evangelistic call. Maybe for some of you, when you hear the word repent, you just think of the street preacher, right? You have the street preacher... And he's the one calling people to repent. Well, it's not merely that. Of course, that's our modern understanding and our modern hearing of that. And it's certainly more than just a call with a more conservative or a fundamentalist man on the street or a church the call to repent also is not a new call. Some would say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian, and of course, that's what's associated with being a New Testament Christian, right? The call to repent, and it's synonymous with Christ Church, entry into Christ Church. That is true, it is. But there's something more going on behind this word. And in this one sense, we do pause to at least acknowledge that it is true that the very first word recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Out of Christ's mouth, when he begins his preaching ministry, is indeed the word repent, Matthew four seventeen. And that New Testament call to repent continues right through Christ's ministry. It's passed on to the apostles, and it characteristic, it's characteristic of their ministry in the book of Acts, And the call to repent, which gives way to church history and continues through the church's ministry today, hence what you might hear. That's true, and it's all still true, but... Again, as we begin this morning, we want to note that it is not new. The idea of repentance is not a new call, not a modern call. It's not just a New Testament call. In fact, it was the call to Israel over and over again. We find this repeatedly in the New Testament. Just go to one prophet for this. Ezekiel 14.6 says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, there's the target audience, the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Very clear language. Then again, a few chapters later in Ezekiel 18, 30 to 32, listen to this. Therefore, again to Israel, I will judge you, O house of Israel, one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. And here it is again, repent and what, here's the action associated, turn away from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be a ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. There's the heart of repentance there. Turn and live. That is it. It's not just the action. It's the consequence when one turns. Turn and live. Those three words in all their simplicity capture the heart and all that is repentance. Turn and live. Turn from going your own way. Turn from a way that brings death and live. Turn from death and Return and embrace life. The psalmist confirms that reality in Psalm 7, verse 12. Listen to this divine warning. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. And that call to turn and live, the Old Testament further teaches, and this is important, it's not just a mental ascent. Listen, if anyone knew Yahweh in one sense, if anyone knew the laws of Yahweh and the standard of Yahweh, it was who? Israel. Yet they were the ones being called to repent in the Old Testament. Israelites were very good at head knowledge, head knowledge that never reached the inner man. Through the prophet Joel to sinning Israel, the Lord declared this, listen to Joel 2.12, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me, this is Israel, with all your heart. It's not just a token turn, return to me with all your heart. Of course, Israel's lack of wholehearted repentance continues to this very day. Yet, Westmount, we know it will not go on forever. In the final chapter of the Old Testament, we read not only of the coming day, where Israel's unrepentant heart is broken and smashed, but the fate that awaits all of those who have continued unrepentant before God. Listen to Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, presumably, right, think about these, these who turn, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. And they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And the Old Testament closes with this. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And what will he do? Listen. This is, again, see, think about Israel, but we think about the call to all. He will turn the hearts of fathers where? To their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That is the picture of repentance that is coming on that day, demonstrated in Malachi. And, beloved, in light of those verses we just read here in Malachi, I want to make one final comment As we begin on repentance this morning, the day is coming, you just heard it, when the Lord will act, Malachi 4.3. It moves from theory to reality, right? A day is coming when action of the Lord in this judgment for the unrepentant happens. And we need to say this again as we think about our modern stereotypes of repentance calls. But also, when we think about our theoretical abstraction, sometimes repentance can just sit in this cloud of abstraction and christian ease. right? I know it's something that Christians need to do, and I know it's a word associated even with my living, but it's just that, and we relegate it there. Malachi 4.3 reminds us, the day is coming when the Lord will act, and when he acts, it's not to slap people on the wrist... Or hand out exceptions to the slightly evil, right? It's not it. No, 4 1, Malachi says, All evildoers, in other words, all those not turning, 4 6, will face eternal consequences. And that is why, beloved, getting discipleship and repentance right matters vitally, right? That is why we must act even if it is not practiced or popular. Why? Because a day is coming where we will realize, whether we believed it or not, that souls truly were at stake. A day is coming. And to be clear, this is not all because of one soul we love. This is for all souls here in this room and that would be in our midst. This critical reminder for our Westmount family is necessary for each ear here to hear. All of us, every single one. Because we can be self-deceived. Each one of us here can think we stand. All of us prone to fear of man and listen to sorrow misdiagnosis, as we'll see this morning. As such, this Lord's Day, we must take time on repentance. Because the eternal destiny of your soul and all souls matter, don't they? This is why this is important. To do so, we head to a church in a letter where it was spelt out directly. It's a very, very helpful church for us, the Corinthian church. You're looking at it, it's open. The Corinthians, of course, were not your model local church, right? They were anything but that. They weren't your Philippian church, and they certainly weren't the Thessalonican church. The Corinthians were simply the Corinthians. In First Corinthians, the letter makes it clear. You wonder if the corrections ever end in that first letter, right? Well, at some point after the first letter of Corinthians, Paul had cause to write another letter. And if you want to look at chapter 2, verse 4, he references this second letter. Now it's not the letter that he's writing, obviously, but he references another letter and that letter is lost to us, called the, the real second letter to the Corinthians. It's lost to us, but it did fall between the two Corinthian letters we do have. It's known as the lost letter of rebuke, or we could say a severe letter, Paul calls it. And it was addressed to the unrepentant. That's the key to understand the context as we dive into chapter 7. Paul had written a letter because of unrepentance and he was waiting. He had dispensed Titus, his trusted Uh, colleague in the faith he had dispensed titus to corinth with the severe letter and imagine his waiting like any father right dispensing that discipline how will my son receive it he was waiting and you can imagine his overjoy not only at titus return but the news and let's pick up the news in verse five for even when we came into macedonia our bodies had no rest but we were afflicted at every turn fighting without and fear within But God who comforts the downcast comforted us, here it is, by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us, here's the report, of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. We're going to come back to those words. So that I rejoice still more. In other words, he comes back to report they have indeed repented. Verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, which he did, I do not regret it. Why, Paul? Why don't you regret it? might have been a harsh letter. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. Right? That's not what his joy is in, but here's where the joy is. Not that he's a harsh taskmaster and he's really mean and he loves the fact that he gave it to him in the letter. No, why were you joyful? Because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. There it is. Because you were grieved into repenting. And then Paul says this, and this is where we're going to touch down for this morning. Verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you indeed would take those verses for us this morning. And touch them down in our hearts, Lord. May they do the work that only can be done by way of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we submit ourselves to that this morning and again pray for the effectual work of you and you alone to do its ministry through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, simply this morning, as we look at these two verses, we're going to look at two questions. The first is this, what is repentance? What is repentance? That's our first point. And back to verse 10. Look at it carefully. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The text here tells us that after being approached in sin, remember our context, we keep our context, right? the Corinthians being approached on this, the unrepentant, there can be two types of grief. Note that there's two types of grief. The word grief there, I want you to look at it, it can also be sorrow, some translations would have sorrow, and it means this, a pain of mind. This is mental pain, this is a pain of mind. So two types of pain, one is called godly grief, and the other is called worldly grief. Both are grief. And that would be grief noted. Again, we keep the context in the wake of sin. This is grief in the wake of sin. And grief, can we be clear this morning and state the obvious, grief is something that you feel, is it not? It's a very strong emotion to feel grief, to feel pain. So in the wake of sin, in the face of being confronted on your sin, right as Paul did to the Corinthians, one will experience grief. We just need to know that something we feel in the wake of knowledge of sin. Now, to be clear, this is not an emotion that is still denying or defending sin. Okay, That's very different. That would be a different message for the one in rebellion, denying or defending. That's not what's going on here. This is grief, grief that has no choice but to accept the facts. And it does. That's what this grief is. Grief confronted, sin made clear, no refuting as the evidence is over and abundant. And when that happens and we see that we have sinned, we will grieve. Beloved, yes, we will. We will. The question then this verse presents is how will we grieve? In a godly way or in a worldly way? This verse, look at it again, suggests there are two ways we grieve when our sin is before us, and we accept those facts. Now, you should be asking, what is the difference? That's what you should be asking. What's the difference? Well, first of all, let's approach this carefully. We begin to understand the difference in the very words the text uses. Okay, That's how we operate. Let's go to the words. What's the difference that the the inspired words tell us? Well, one, look at it, is called godly grief. You see that adjective? Not just grief. Godly grief, and it tells us this. The character of the sinner's grief, his pain of mind, is in alignment with God's mind on the matter. Does that make sense? His his pain of mind and his grief is in alignment. That's why it's called godly. It's in alignment with what God thinks about the matter. He sees the sin the way God sees it. Now, here's the important thing. Not the way the world does, or not the way he or she wants to, There it is. His pain is God's pain now. His grief is how God would grieve. That's it. Westmount, he's stricken with pain, grief, and sorrow, just as God is in the wake of our sin. So his pain of mind is godly. It sees the offense as a godly offense. Now that is straightforward, and you might ask, isn't that how it always is? I love those diligent Maybe young Christian questions, isn't that the way that it always is? Isn't that the way that it should be? Isn't everyone, when they repent and grieve, isn't that what it looks like? And the answer is no. For one, this passage tells us that there is another way to grieve over our sin. Secondly, as we'll see, the other way is sadly more common and certainly evident. The other way is called worldly grief, and here again the adjective helps. We then can describe worldly grief as a sorrow. Here it is, it is in line with what? How the world would assess the matter. Does that make sense? Godly grief is the way God sees it. Worldly grief is the way the world sees it, right? Pretty straightforward, I pray. Worldly grief does not view the sin the way God does. And hopefully immediately you're starting to see things where there could be problems entering in. Dashboard lights going off and you begin to recognize this is where problems can happen. I mean both, and let's again just be basic and simple, both are grief and a pain of mind and all of their attendant feelings. Both in the wake of being confronted with sin feel pain and yes, feel sorrow. So both, if we're not too diligent and don't look too closely, can look the same at first. But underneath, the grief is much different, says the word of God. So to start, that should at least draw our concern and attention. Now that's one, the very words used. Two, the difference is determined in what they produce. So there's a difference defined by the words themselves, and there's a difference determined in what each produces. Godly grief, look at the text, says produces what? Repentance. We know worldly grief does not produce repentance. Repentance, and we're going to return to that in a moment, only flows from godly grief. Do you see that? And repentance, of course, leads to salvation, as the verse says. So it's godly grief and only godly grief that brings about not just repentance, but salvation. Thus, godly grief is the only way to life, thus true life. Do you see that? Thus, no surprise that it is worldly grief, the verse says, that produces death. This just makes sense. Now, beloved, if we had cause for attention with the words themselves, then we certainly must have cause for alarm with the production of each. I suggest none of us would want to be involved with something that produces death. Does that not make sense? If there's something that I could be prone to that looks like something else and I could be fooled, this absolutely causes me to sit up straight to say, I don't want to be involved with that. And we would say, yet, with something so opposite with both, nothing short of the difference of life and death, you might then say, How can we not be fooled here? How can we discern the pain rightly, the pain of mind rightly? I don't want to be fooled. But we consider, friends, more closely what godly grief produces. Verse 10. Repentance. Let's look at that word now. And what is repentance? Repentance, metanoia there, is a change of mind. That's what that word means. Aiming to keep this very just simple here. It's a change of mind. But when I, when I think about a change of mind, and I pray you do as well too, I pray your default is this, that a change of mind is more than pain and feelings, isn't it? A change of mind, beloved, should suggest a whole change of life, shouldn't it? There are thousands of illustrations I can give you about how a change of mind must, if it's authentic, always lead to what? External difference, right? And change, shouldn't it? Again, I could give you many examples. If I say to you, I changed my mind about X, Y, and Z, you should see that in my actions. So we know that a change of mind is more than just a painful thought or painful feelings. I'm going to submit to you this morning, this is where we relegate it, and this is where we get ourselves in trouble. Well, I felt bad about that, and then we move on. Well, this is what grief is, right? Grief hurts. But listen, because you grieve in the wake of your sin doesn't mean you necessarily change your mind, does it? The thief that gets caught, right, and recognizes that he's going to jail, right, he may feel horrible and painful that he doesn't get to steal for seven years. And then you really know what kind of grief it was when he gets out and he does what? Steals again. Even more, and this is very important, the presence of sin recognition or pain or even the strong guttural presence of grief does not automatically mean repentance is present. Now again, this is stating the obvious just based on the text, but I think we need to see this. Turn with me to Matthew 26, Matthew 26, a wonderful portion of scripture to really see this. In technicolor, of course, we really need little introduction to Peter. And all we need to say at the end of chapter 26, we just simply see Peter here denying Jesus Christ three times. Remember, Jesus said to him, Peter, you're going to do this. You're going to deny me. And here, Peter, right? And you could just imagine what Peter is going through here, fulfilling the prophecy with his own hands and his own mouth, in fact, verse 74, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And then what? As Jesus said, immediately the rooster crowed. If you go to Luke's gospel, it talks about how Jesus and Peter lock eyes in this moment. That's where Peter goes. And in verse 75, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Think about that. What does he remember? He remembers Jesus. Note that. As a cue in repentance, he remembers Jesus and what? He remembers that Jesus said this before the rooster crows. You'll deny me three times. Here, in this posture, in this grief, he's remembering the words of Jesus. And then, two, he went out and he what? Wept bitterly. Now, of course, the rest of the New Testament demonstrates what kind of grief that was, doesn't it? What about another apostle, Judas? We continue in... Chapter 27, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, to the governor. Then when Judas, so here's your contrast, his betrayer, so one betrayed with words, I don't know Jesus, one here betraying with his actions, so we have both men sinning, and we're going to see both men confronted with their sins, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourselves. Now that change of mind is very different to repentance. If you were to get behind the word, you would see that. But again, it illustrates to us that we can have a deep feeling, a grief That causes us to do something. And what does it cause Judas to do? Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple. He departed and he went and he hanged himself. So look at the contrast between Peter and Judas here. Very clear. Judas fooled at least 11 people for a while. But his his worldly grief, do you see it? Spoke volumes. Worldly grief... Not only is not interested with God's mind on things, Judas didn't think about the words of Jesus, didn't turn to Jesus, right? There was no weeping in that sense. But Judas's worldly grief is consumed with himself in the wake of his sin, is it not? Worldly grief gets busy then, and here's your picture, with self-preservation and self-pity. This is what Judas did. Do you see that? Exhibit A is indeed Judas. Worldly grief, then, when you look at these contrasts, asks this. And you can imagine Judas thinking about that. i got to go back, and I have to face the eleven. What will they think of me? What will I do now? I've been exposed as a betrayer. Oh, no. Worldly grief, then, asks, and this is very helpful, the Judas account. How do I get out of this thing? We know what Judas chose to do to get out of this thing. That's what worldly grief asks, and this is a good diagnostic for us. In the wake of sin, are we saying, how do I get out of this thing? Worldly grief, like Judas, fixates on self. And here it is, worldly grief turns inward, not upward. Peter, of course, turned to Christ. Remember the words of Christ, not Judas. Worldly grief never stops for a moment to consider what Jesus said. It does not weep bitterly like Peter. It may weep, it may weep for self, but it won't weep for Jesus. And it cannot because there is no true metanoia, change of mind here. There's no turning from self to God. Oh, there's little turns, right? I'm going to throw back the 30 pieces of silver. Maybe I'll get a reset with that, but not the true change of mind that turns from self to God. Godly grief, as we now turn back to 2 Corinthians, and only godly grief, remember, produces repentance, like Peter. Worldly grief does not do that, says verse ten of our passage. It produces death, like Judas. Now, Westman, I pray that's clear, that simple contrast, and even as we think through repentance, that is what godly grief and worldly grief are, and it's what they produce, and. Understanding what repentance is, I pray, is also helpful for us here. However, there's one more step of help and aid that we need here, and I must tell you, we need it. We need to go further, not only because the text does, but we look in our lives and we see that. Because, again, grief proper is often just simply so difficult to discern. What the Word of God does now is take godly grief one step further, Worldly grief just stops at death, but godly grief does not just produce repentance. But now, verse 11, let us see what in turn repentance itself produces. And that's our second point. We have looked at what is repentance, what does repentance produce? Let's move on to verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Paul now breaks down what continues to flow from godly grief and repentance. He breaks it down. And each one given here is so very helpful as we discern our own repentance. This is a very helpful verse. As we think through our pain of mind and our grief... Beloved, I pray it's instructive for all of us this morning. So let's take a look at each one individually to see what repentance produces. In other words, if repentance is there, you are going to see this, says the Word of God. First, Paul says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. So first we'd say repentance produces earnestness. Here, that means indifference to sin is no more. The offender is moved with purpose to do something and not just throw 30 pieces of silver back, but to make things right, move to do something that is right and swiftly. You see the manner there of earnestness. Now, beloved, this earnestness often manifests itself as initiation. The offender steps up. Initiation is a great indicator of true repentance. Now, this doesn't mean repentance is not possible if they have to be told of their sin. It just means that upon repentance, true repentance, you will see intention, says the Word of God. Regardless of initiation, however, earnestness is always seen as willingness. Hence what? This is no pushback from the offender when approached on bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. No hanging on to things, no snares. In fact, no concern for one's reputation. The repentant basically says this. Here's the spirit of earnestness. I will do whatever I'm asked and it takes to make it right earnestly. I will do this. Two, look at verse 11, we continue. Earnestness is produced, secondly, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. Secondly, repentance produces more than a reset desire. And I think we all know about the reset desire. In that pain of mind, you're like, wow, could I just go back to yesterday? That's a reset fleshly desire. Here, we see an eagerness to clear ourselves. It doesn't want to just go back to before the sin. It wants to be clear. It wants to be clean. Turn to Psalm 51. This is what Luke read for us this morning. So much we could say about this psalm, so instructive about what true godly repentance looks like. But let's just scan again verses 3 to 10. And I want you to pick out the heart of this repentant king. Of course, his sin is well known with Bathsheba, with Uriah, and so on. And when he is struck, what does he say? Verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me because my brother and my sister came to me and told me about my sin. Do you see that in your version? No. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Let's continue. Look at his heart. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What's his cry? Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken, there's a godly perspective, in affliction I turn to you, Right? The bones that you have broken rejoice, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then this, create in me, says the repentant, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That is repentance. Hear it. Repentance produces a deep desire to be washed clean from sin. You see that with David. This is not just the let's get back to the way things were of worldly sorrow, right? That's just rampant, isn't it? Can we just scrub this clean in that sense and get back to the way things were? This is, can you just scrub my heart clean? Because I'm a sinner. This eagerness wants to earn back trust in light of the mercy extended. This eagerness wants to bear fruit now in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3 verse 8. Thirdly, again back to verse 11. Let's turn back to 2 Corinthians 7. What indignation. Look at verse 11. Repentance produces indignation. This simply means this. You're like, what does that word mean? It sounds like an old English word. What does indignation mean? It means a disgust. A hatred of sin, says the word of God. This is evidence that the offender is truly now seeing things God's way. He or she recognizes their sin and calls it for what it is, which is what? Wickedness. Repentance knows nothing of calling sin a mistake or giving it a label or an excuse indignation righteous indignation says i am disgusted with what i did but praise god for his grace and by the way i never want to do that again ever by god's grace, that's what the indignant says fourth what fear look at it repentance yes praise god produces fear And as good fear always is in Scripture, this is fear of God. This is the fear that was missing, by the way, in the sin and in the worldly grief. Here in repentance, it's activated. It's there. But repentance produces and often returns one to godly fear. Listen, beloved, when we have misguided fear, when we fear anything but God, we will sin and we're more prone to sin. And, of course, the most common fear is the fear of man. The fear of man. Repentance produces godly fear. Fifth, what longing? What longing? Repentance produces longing. In context here, and we've gone through this this morning, this is physical longing. Paul writing, Titus returns and heard about, remember, their longing, wanting to be back with him. This is the longing of the Corinthians to see Paul again to have restoration. Now, this is just a critical point. True repentance brings longing. It brings restoration. Only repentance produces this longing to be reconciled. And this is just so good. This is why, by the way, you cannot have reconciliation without repentance. You can't. You just can't. Sure, you can be ready to forgive and be at peace in your heart, ready with forgiveness for your offender. But if... They are unrepentant. They are anything but longing to be right with you. Is that not true? And that's one of the signs of the unrepentant, right? There's no longing to be back together with. Repentance produces the longing that heals relationships and brings them back. Six. Look at it. What zeal. Great word here we get both zealous and jealous from. Repentance produces zeal. This is The great word that protects holiness. It's an Old Testament word too, you know it. Think Phineas in Numbers 25, spear in hand, who took care of things, you remember that account, when a countryman brought a Midianite wife to his family, almost arrogantly in the sight of all. Phineas in his zeal took care of it and said, how can we defy this holy God figuratively and threw the spear against his countrymen? And he speared them both, by the way, not just the Israelite, but the Midianite. He speared them both. How did God respond to that from Phineas? When you think about zeal, Phineas, Phineas, oh my Phineas, that is excessive, that is just so harsh. No, no. God, in fact, turned to Phineas, the protector of holiness in his zeal, and you know what he did? He said, I grant you a covenant of peace. Numbers 25.12 records that, to bless his zeal. That same zeal, to now guard what is holy, is what repentance produces. The repentant becomes zealous to protect holiness. In other words, there's no more tolerance of sin. No more lukewarm. No repentance produces zeal, and for the truly repentant, believe me, brethren, you will see it. Seventh, what punishment repentance produces punishment this of course is not the punishment for sin right we know that that for the truly repentant is borne by who alone christ praise god he bears the punishment right that atonement only by christ the punishment though produced here is the acceptance the agreement of the consequence this is king david you remember this account in Second Samuel, after being told that in the wake of his sin with Bathsheba, he would lose who? His son. He was told that. He's going to lose his son. That's his punishment. And then upon his son's passing, how does he respond to that punishment? Let's read and be reminded. Verse 20 of 2 Samuel 12. Then David, this is upon him hearing that the child is dead. David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And a servant said to him, what is this thing you've done? you fasted and wept for the child while he's alive? But when the child died, you rose and ate food? If we could paraphrase, what's going on with you? These actions don't seem to dictate what a worldly lens would look like. Verse 22, David said, well, the child was still alive. I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? Whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Shall I go to him? But he will not return to me. Westmount, the repentant heart accepts the consequences of their actions. This is what we see with David. They do not sulk. They do not complain. They do not sin more. They receive it like the king. And you know what's astonishing about the David account? What did David do? Not only did he not sin more, what did he do? He didn't just eat. What did he do? He worshipped. I've received the punishment that's just due. And one imagines David saying, Praise God, my soul is secure in the Lord. Remember what Nathan said to him? You are forgiven. But there will be punishment. And finally, let's consider Paul's final comment in verse 11. Look, at every point... He says, you've proved yourselves what? Innocent in the matter. That is a striking word. Beloved, a statement like this can only be made in light of the gospel. It's my joy to herald that to you today. A declaration of innocence to a sinner is a gospel reality. I can't possibly communicate the riches of that truth. That an offender would be declared innocent is why we're gathered here today how can you must ask the offender prove innocent in the wake of sin listen as we have sung and read and prayed today only through jesus that's it there's no other way and here we could add repentance produces innocence like that's an audacious thing to say that's what the text says and that's what Jesus did. Repentance produces innocence. Obviously not practical innocence. This is not some modern new age kind of just pretended it didn't happen and it didn't happen. That's not what we're talking about. Practically you did it. You're guilty as the day is long. It's not practical innocence then that ignores or denies the real sin committed. That's reality. However, what's going on here is this. The gospel truth that the innocence here is not in practice but in position before God. This is innocence that upon repentance places one under a different verdict. Beloved, can you grasp that today? This is the blood that you have access to every day of your life. When you sin and deserve to be stricken, you can get on your knees, repent, and be no longer declared guilty. And be declared innocent. Do you know that? Do you know that? In your sin, when you repent truly godly and you deserve to be struck and your son should be taken away from you, your soul should be lost, you can repent and be declared, listen, not guilty. I cannot possibly herald to you this morning anything more life-changing than that. For those that would say this is very heavy. Oh, it's so glorious. We have repentance that produces innocence. This is innocence that is the not guilty declaration in Jesus Christ. That is robed in his righteousness. Only in Christ can repentant at every point be declared innocent. Listen, only when your position and your union is with the Almighty Christ can you be declared innocent at every point, as the text says. That is what repentance produces. Now, there are many biblical pictures and lessons we could close with here. Many. We could mention Esau, who after realizing his sin... Do you remember in trading his birthright, so hungry he wanted a bowl of stew in that moment of flesh? The stew seems like it's better than everything. When he realized what he had done, he had a pain of mind. Do you remember? He grieved. Genesis 27, 38, oh, how Esau wept. It's confirmed later, by the way, he grieved all right, but it was not repentance. Hebrews 12, 16 to 17 says this, Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to what? Repent, though he sought it with tears. His window had run out. There is Saul, who also wept. Remember the account in 1 Samuel 24, 16? Saul had a bloodlust for David. Many of those psalms written as David was on the run from Saul, the king who wanted to kill him. But, of course, David spared Saul, and we know that, good Christian, right, multiple times. But Saul wept in 1 Samuel 24, 16. Let's listen to at least this one account captured in 1 Samuel 24, 16. And this is, of course, remember, David has just spared Saul's life, right? He's in the cave. He could have killed him. He didn't. And David reveals himself to Saul, verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, basically saying, here I am, and I didn't touch my Lord's anointed, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Just feel the emotion of Saul's words here. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. This is Saul. He said to David, listen, you are more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you've dealt with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done me this day. And then Saul pours it on. Listen to verse 20. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And here's something very important to note with worldly sorrow. Listen to what he says next. And I have a bargain for you, David, because I'm not looking at this through God's sight. Swear to me... Therefore, by the Lord, you'll not cut off my offspring after me, and that you'll not destroy my name out of my father's house. You see that? There are your hallmarks of worldly sorrow. I need to cut a deal. I need to make sure I preserve myself. Right? Esau sought it with tears, didn't get it. Saul, illustration of worldly sorrow, proving, Saul does in this account, proving that words and appearances are not always as they seem. Westmount, listen, Esau and Saul and many more in their worldly sorrow are an example of this. As we set off the beginning, we need the caution. As one commentator put it, I quote, Recognition of sin by itself is not repentance. It may be defiance, nor is sorrow for sin repentance. If it be alone in the mind, it may be remorse or despair. Abandonment of sin by itself may be no more than prudence, End quote. In other words, things are too hot right now to continue. Let me just lay low. Indeed, repentance is not simply the recognition of sin, the sorrow over sin, or even the abandonment of sin. Often in self-preservation, we have no choice to yield to those things. It is only when God grants one to be struck to the heart and come to their senses that a true change of mind, a fruit-producing change of mind, occurs. Now, it would betray us this morning to close just with that because we need one more picture because you must be sitting there saying, okay, that's definitely pictures of worldly sorrow. We got a glimpse of Peter. But word of God, what does repentance look like? And the one that we follow gave us that picture. Turn to Luke 15. What does repentance look like? By the way, as we begin this chapter, we're not reading the whole thing to close, but I want you to scan verses 1 to 7. You know the parable of the lost sheep? And what is going on with the lost sheep? A man has lost one of his hundred, and when the one is lost, he goes and what? Goes to get it. Verses 8 through 10, there's a coin that's lost. What happens when the one coin is lost, right? She goes and she seeks it. That's the context here. Something that's lost, someone seeking to find. Jesus continues in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, you can imagine the anxiety going on in the young son. While he was still a young way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What does repentance look like? Verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I want you to look at that again. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That is godly grief from this son that produces a repentance that leads to salvation. No excuses, no blame. No reluctance, only recognition in running to the Father. And by the way, what of the Father? Sinned against, taken advantage of, a wayward son. No, I told you so. No score, no condemnation. Only the Father's love. To the broken, humbled, repentant son and sinner who genuinely turned and returned. And listen, look at the account. More than a robe and a fattened calf. That was the picture in this parable. The repentant son receives much more than garments and food, doesn't he? What does he receive? His father's mercy and compassion. In fact, he receives even more than that. Not only is he no longer feeding pigs, but feasting at his father's table, he's no longer dead in the pigsty and is now found, right? Because he turned and he lived. Friends, I pray we do the same. To be saved, maybe for some. To be sanctified, for sure. And for all of us to turn and live into glory, I pray. Father, we do take these words of repentance, Lord, and pray that they would be true in our own hearts, first and foremost. And Lord, let us not be fooled by our pains of mind. And let us turn, repent, And embrace life in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, what a picture of you, open arms, Lord, awaiting the repentant. So God, stir hearts as you must and can only do, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.